When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Arliss Bunny. And I'm David Paquette. I'm Joel Dent. And I'm Michelle LaShore. Today on Hopping Mad, Will is still on vacation. And boy, are we all jealous. But Will's on vacation, so I am being joined by the whole new team. And Michelle, this is her first show on the air with us. And she's going to tell us a little bit about herself. Hi, Arliss. I'm a mom, mate, and library advocate. I love anything to do with libraries and teaching and helping people find the resources that they need. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, Arliss. Well, we love to have you. We were so lucky when we put out this sort of call for help because we got people with really, really different areas of expertise. And Michelle brings a whole different aspect of thoughtfulness and, in fact, also editing skills, which Will and I are thrilled about, (laughs) to the show. Well, thank you. I wanted to talk about the lying liar of the week and also to say that I think I copied off of you, Arlius. I think what I did was, well, I'm basically using the same lie, which is something that he's repeated, which is that he respects women. And your lying liar of the week really encapsulates that. I guess what I'm doing is talking a little bit about a recent report that just came out stating that there is a significant wage gap in White House staffer salaries since Trump took office. Really? This comes from the American Enterprise Institute, which, you know, is a conservative think tank. And this comes from one of their bloggers, Mark Perry, who has the Carp Diem blog. It was covered in Washington Post. And I was turned on to it by Laura Clausen from Daily Cross. Oh, sure. Cross. Yeah. Yeah. I started following her. And this was a really good, I think, way to get into it. Perry states that in her article, the median female White House employee is drawing a salary of $72,650 in 2017 compared to the median male salary of 115000 So the, the typical female staffer in Trump's White House earns 63.2 cents per $1 earned by a typical male staffer. There's a 17% gender pay gap nationally. So this is almost twice that. Man. On Twitter, I saw it briefly flash past that information about salaries had been released. And I didn't actually stop and read the article because, frankly, I can just only onboard so much information in any given (laughs) week. And it just seems like we're just drowning in stuff right now. But We really are. As I'm looking at... As I'm thinking about that, and even when it flashed past, what I really wondered was what percentage of all White House staffers are women? And I don't know if you've got that at your fingertips, but I'm guessing that it's dramatically lower than it was in the Obama White House. It's very low. I saw the numbers, and I don't want to quote anything offhand without making sure that I'm correct. But I know that there, let me see. There is a statistic here. The top, okay, White House employees 
2017. So in the top uh, 101, there's 26% females to 73.3% male. So, so it's more than half of the population is represented by only 26% of the White House employees. So this report comes out because it's required by Congress that the White House annually delivers a report to Congress on July 1st, listing the title and salary of every White House office employee. So based on the White House salaries, it was reported rather erroneously that there's a 20% gender pay gap at the Trump White House based on the difference in average salaries. The pay gap is actually much, much larger when you consider the median salaries by gender. So, um, man, that's uh, just... Yeah, it's a very, it's it's an incredible report. And, you know, and I... I, So he respects women, just not their voices. (laughs) Not their their intelligence, not their input, nothing like that. No, exactly. And, And plus he's rolling back a lot of protections that were put in place for federal contracted employees for women uh, as women. Basically, a lot of companies were just getting heaps and heaps of government contracts and without addressing their workplace harassment policies. So he has he just signed an executive order that rolls that back. Well, it's that really does. just dovetail nicely in with my nomination for the Lang Liar Live of the Week, which is that on Friday, June 30th, Trump held this signing ceremony at the White House to bring back the National Space Council, and he did this by executive order. Well, on its face, that's fine. I mean, who can object to a National Space Council? We had one before. (laughs) Having one again is not a big deal. But one wonders if we really do need another layer of bureaucracy. When it comes to the space program, having done some contracting work for NASA, it's hard for me to believe that any more bureaucracy is needed anywhere (laughs) in the NASA organization. And there's a reason for the bureaucracy they have, but it's still a little daunting. But my thinking on that is that I would bet you a carrot that this is the influence (laughs) of Elon Musk. That Oh, right. Because I mm-hmm. think this has to do with directing funding away from NASA and towards SpaceX. But that's just conjecture mm-hmm. on my part. That's just me, you know, thinking outside the rabbit hole. But <laughs> interestingly, NASA was not informed of the resurrection of the National Space Council. <laughs> they weren't told and they weren't officially present at the ceremony itself. Nobody from NASA headquarters was there. They weren't (laughs) invited. And the ceremony was not even listed on the White House calendar. Yes, I saw that. It was really, you know, under the, you know, they really tried to hide it. But Mm -hmm. it comes immediately upon the heels of the closure of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policies (laughs) policies <laughs> science division literally the day before trump did this and he got all kinds of flack on twitter the day before they closed the science division of the science and technology yeah. policy office because the last staffers left they just they up and left and oh my god that was all over twitter and i just wonder if that didn't Trump didn't make some calls and get some people, you know, or have calls made and get people there and and just pull this out of his posterior uh, 
you know, <laughs> I, in response to what was happening the day before on Twitter. But, you know, because one has to wonder with this president, really, don't we have to ask ourselves if that's what was going on? Trump's, <laughs> Trump's comments Sorry. at this ceremony were typically ignorant. You know, it's nothing new, but they were particularly funny because you could see just how ignorant his comments were oh. on Buzz Aldrin's face, because this is, of course, all on video. And Aldrin was unable to keep the astonished look off his face or his eyebrows out of his hairline. I mean, he was so shocked that his eyebrows go all the way up his face. And Trump, of course, verbally wanders around in an utterly baffling way. He says things like, and, you know, this just makes me cringe, but he says, we're going to use this to go into deep space, even Mars. Mars is not deep space. Mars is right around the corner in the spectrum of what's out there in space. Mars is, you know, the the grocery store down the block. Right. And the thing, one of the things that just killed me, talked about, you know, Mike is really into space, talking about our vice president. But of course, you know, this is the same Mike Pence who tried to eliminate all the funding for NASA while he was in Congress. And I and I think it's worth noting here that Pence is now the head of the committee, right? Yes, yeah, right, the exactly. Council. And uh, there's pictures yesterday on Twitter of him down at the Kennedy Space Center putting his hand on something with an enormous sign that says, do not touch. <laughs> you know, it's bound for space <laughs> and it says, you know. Instant meme. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's all, it's all over Twitter. It's pretty funny, but... All of this gets dangerous when, as Trump meandered on, he was talking a great deal about national security Mm -hmm. and how the space program works in lockstep with national security. And I'm thinking, okay, he's talking about all the technologies and that kind of thing that are derived from the space exploration program. That's where he's going with these comments. And I'm thinking, okay, that's logical. That makes sense. But then he goes here and he says, at some point in the future, we're going to look back and say, how did we do it without space? <laughs> yes. He's talking about national security. And then he's saying, how did we do it without space? Now, that's not ignorant. It's certifiable because whatever is up there is absolutely something that is never spoken of. In the same way people used to talk about the NSA as no such agency, mm-hmm. nobody in this government ever talks about what we're doing in terms of security in Mm -hmm. space. It's one of those, if we are doing something significant in space that is related to national security, it is beyond highly classified. It is the tip of the pyramid because an arms race in space is the worst possible idea. However much you ever worried about a nuclear arms race or Mm -hmm. a nuclear war, Mm -hmm. multiply that by an order of magnitude if you're suddenly talking about arming space because the Chinese, well, think about, they would not be screwing around or they are not screwing around depending on what's actually going on heck in no. terms of, and yeah. so for Trump to talk about this, I mean, it's really dangerous. And, and so for people who are paying attention, a huge shudder went through everybody related to the <laughs> space program all over the country. But mm-hmm. here's the thing that I really wanted to get to. And the thing that really drew my attention in all of this and made me yell at my Twitter feed, which is that Trump talked about the three astronauts in the room and he named them Buzz Aldrin, Alvin Drew, David Wolf. These are all incredibly talented, smart men who all deserve to be in that room and representing the space program. 
But Trump completely left off the fact that there's a fourth astronaut in the room, a woman, astronaut Sandy Magnus, was standing five feet away from Trump. She's the current executive director of the American Institute of Aerospace and Aeronautics. She's an engineer. She's logged 134 days in space as a mission specialist. And because Trump completely ignored her and basically erased her from the room, Twitter went berserk. And I have to say that... Astro Sandy, as she is known, Astro (laughs) underscore Sandy, as she's known on Twitter, really did give the president polite cover in her response tweet because she's a professional and, for instance, her organization needs funding. But here's the real moral. The president values women only as long as they feed into his view of his personal masculinity. He only recognizes swimsuit models who flirt with him, for instance. And while I'm sure Miss Mangus owns a swimsuit, she's a professional. She wouldn't be caught dead at a White House (laughs) ceremony in a swimsuit. Trump, for his part, looked right through her, completely erased her. (laughs) And this is how he sees it. She's she's only Mm -hmm. smart, successful, and at the very top of her profession. So it made me yell at Twitter in an almost embarrassing way. And I, (laughs) I just, it is... In the scheme of things and the terrible things he's doing to women with health policy and and the kinds of things that you're talking about, things that affect people's jobs and lives Mm -hmm. and livelihoods, this is a small thing, but it is a representative thing. And I thought it, it spoke to the degree to which he really just doesn't see us, period. He just he doesn't get it. So I'm going yeah. to declare this a tie in the scheme <laughs> of, uh, of Lying Liar Lie of the Week, because really we're talking about the same horrific thing. Yeah, I copied on you. <laughs> That's okay, because they were both important points to make. Next up on Hopping Mad, we have David Paquette talking about American health care here on Netroots Radio. Now we're going to talk about health care. As it stands right now, the Senate's version of the Obamacare repeal and upper class tax relief bill is still in limbo. Senator McConnell has sent two new versions of the bill to the CBO to be scored, but he's also started making noises about needing to make repairs to the Affordable Care Act marketplaces if they can't do anything to undermine them. While it didn't seem possible even a week ago, the Republican effort continues to lose public support. The Senate bill currently polls just a little bit below Chris Christie and slightly (laughs) above Toe Fungus. (laughs) Although Christie seems to be losing ground by the day, Toe Fungus actually appears to be gaining in popularity. So essentially, we have the governor of New Jersey and Toe Fungus in a dead heat to equal the popularity of the American Health Care Act. You know, I blame those foot powder commercials, Arliss. Turn toe fungus into a cute cartoon character. Exactly. And who would have thought that you could get anything 
to be less popular than Chris Christie. I think I think toe fungus is doing itself proud. <laughs> oh, well, you know, there's there's also that whole lounging on a beach you just close to the public thing. Well, I think he's down to, you know, he just doesn't give a damn. I think that's got to be what's going through his head. He just does not give a damn. Yeah, yeah. His political instincts are still intact, though. He, he said that his low poll numbers are proof that he doesn't care about his low poll numbers. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Yeah. One of the bills that uh, Leader McConnell has submitted to the CBO includes a provision authored by our friend Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, Cruz's plan is for insurers who offer at least one plan on a marketplace that meets the Affordable Care Act standards, such as being actually health care coverage. Uh, such a company should also be allowed to offer extremely low price plans that aren't insurance and don't meet the Obamacare minimum requirements. If anybody knows anything about a business model, that there's no possible way that could work. Right. And even Republican Senator from Louisiana, Bill Cassidy, is very worried about this. Uh, he worries that dicing up the population into smaller and smaller risk pools could price some people with even greater needs out of the market altogether. He's especially concerned about women who might require maternity care. And uh, to make this point, he said one of the most amazing things in this whole debate. Uh, Cassidy said, as best I can tell, women don't get pregnant without sperm. There's just not room in my head for the degree of stupid that it takes to say something like that. You know, this is an encouraging sign. The, the war on science has apparently left some areas of knowledge intact. Uh, we're not holding Senate hearings about the shortage of storks. <laughs> but it, it does bring up a fact that I would like to expand upon, which is the general state of our healthcare system and how we measure it and how we look at measuring healthcare systems in general. And, and I say that very specifically in general because I want to explain a technical term. It's called duct tape. Now that okay. may not sound like a technical term, but it actually is in terms of looking at all of the factors that contribute to a single measurement. So you can think of certain measurements as a whole bunch of other things all wrapped together with duct tape. And the one final number tells you not in particular about any particular factor that contributes to it, but a lot about the global context from which it arises. And the one that I want to talk about is maternal death rate. So maternal death rates rank as one of the most improved areas of human existence that have been changed by modern medicine. Not that long ago, in our grandparents' time, pregnancy was an extremely hazardous thing. And we have made tremendous strides in particularly in the 20th century, in improving the, the amount of women who die in association with childbirth. And I say association with uh, because there are deaths during pregnancy, there are deaths in the weeks immediately following childbirth, the weeks and months immediately following childbirth. So scientists look at the time from conception through about six months beyond the delivery. And when we compare countries to each other 
on how well their healthcare systems are functioning. This is one measure that actually the CIA uses because it's not only duct taping information about medical systems and the adequacy of care and the adequacy of coverage. It's also about societal chaos versus societal organization. So uh, probably the worst um, country on the list currently uh, will tell you a lot about that factor. It's South Sudan. Oh yeah, of course. For every 100,000 births, there are 2,000 plus <gasps> women who die. So 2% of all the births in South Sudan result in the death of the mother. Oh, my God. I, it's horrifying. Um, closer to home, uh, things in the in the Western world are, are really much, much better. Mexico, uh, we get down to 38 per 100,000, which is a, an enormous, enormous, way better than, than places like South Sudan and Chad and uh, all those East Africa hell pits. Um, however, uh, going just a little bit better than Mexico, we find Texas, uh, which is not really supposed to be in the ranking with quasi third world countries. Yeah, one would think. Uh, one would hope. Uh, Texas actually equals at 33 deaths per 100,000 births. Texas equals Egypt. Whoa. Um, yeah. And even uh, more shocking, three times better than Texas is Lithuania. Okay. Now I'm feeling good about American exceptionalism. Yeah. And what we get to uh, when, when we're in Lithuania is a place that is actually about 40% better than the United States as a whole. Wow. So stop and think about that for a second. We've got Lithuania, which has about 1% of the population of the United States, who's Economy is about 2% the size of the United States, and, and they're doing a third better than we are. We lose 14 per 100,000 mothers, and Lithuania loses 10. Then, wow. of course, everybody loves to hate the Canadian healthcare system. They're down to six deaths per 100,000. That's 57% better than the United States. Yep. And, and at the very top of the list, a number one is Poland, three deaths uh, per hundred thousand. That staggers me. I would have guessed Norway, Sweden, you know, uh, Norway Denmark. Is, Norway is right up there, five deaths for Norway. But uh, yeah, you know. So, I mean, what are the factors that weigh into this duct tape measure? If, if you look at the very worst example, one answer is clear, chaos. South Sudan, Chad, right. Somalia. War. Those are, yeah. those are hell holes. So you can imagine that you have pregnancies happening in, in just horrific conditions. But if you look at places at the opposite end of the scale where women are not trying to give birth right in the middle of a brutal struggle to survive, you realize that there, there really are degrees of chaos and different ways it gets expressed. I mean, if you look at Texas, one factor is clear, systematically removing a major source of contraceptive and prenatal care does not help. Doling out medical care like it was a ration of gruel in some Dickensian orphanage does not help. Yeah. But, you know, I, and on another level, I, I really have a bad feeling about this simply because, you know, I'm an American. I have some of that rah-rah United States stuff going on inside of me, too. Sure. Uh, but I, I also happen to have my eyes open. So my first question has got to be, how on earth does Lithuania do a third better than us at keeping its its pregnant women alive and not just a bit better they are kicking our butts 
Well, I'm going to start with they probably value their women in a way that we don't, systemically. You may have a point there. I don't know enough about Lithuanian culture to be able to say one way or the other about that. But I think that we are better at rationalizing the differences. Oh, I'm sure. You know, uh, some some people would argue that this is really a matter of morality. And, And they might be right about that. They might even say that it's cruel. But Honestly, Arliss, it's much worse than just cruel. It's more expensive. Well, certainly in, I mean, certainly in just the cold, if you're just looking at it, you know, at a cold sort of outside appraisal, yes, it's more expensive. The way we do things is way more expensive and it's a drain on our society. The more women who die, and, and you know, this is just the women who die. We're not talking about the women who, many, many more women, I would imagine, who come close to dying and end up needing more care themselves. So they get to be more expensive. The children that they're not taking care of because they've either died or they're in a nursing home recovering from a bad pregnancy will need care somehow. Those children will not statistically do as well in life, perhaps. Well, and it's like uh, cutting Medicaid such that certain kinds of child, childhood care is not, is not available. And what they know is that if you cut that, that child care and that child health care at an early age, people are less likely to make it through school. They're less likely to go to college. They're less likely to get a job. They actually have the statistics that back that up. So you're not just looking at a small initial expense versus a large initial expense. You're looking at that over an, the entire life of a person. Exactly. Exactly. And and for every step back that somebody has to take, it takes them that much longer to get to a point of being able to be truly self-sufficient in life. So even if they get there, they get there later. And and so we just keep on attaching more and more and more anchors to our own ankles. Yeah, we make it harder. And that's when Republicans are talking about expensive. They're only looking at at what is right in front of their nose. They're absolutely not looking at it in any kind of systemic or long-term way. Right. You know, in the end, when all the other factors are in place, you know, you have a modern healthcare system. You have more than adequate financial resources available within the country. You have proper distribution of all of the factors that lead to a, a healthy pregnancy. It comes down to a matter of national will. You've heard it a thousand times. World hunger isn't about the lack of food. It's about the distribution of food. Right, right. Absolutely. This is another one of those examples. It is about the distribution of medical care. Yep, exactly. We have all the tools we need to do this job. We just don't do it. And as I said, you know, I, I tend to look at these things more pragmatically than elsewise. You know, I mean, I trust me, I, I, I do have a moral view of these things. But from a, a pure eye shades on accounting, we're hurting ourselves. Yes. Yep. We absolutely are. And on that cheerful note, next up on Hopping Mad, I'll be talking about NAFTA and the new Japanese-European Union trade agreement here on Hopping Mad.
back on Hopping Mad. And before I get into my segment on NAFTA, I did want to let folks know who had asked questions about Trump care and modern monetary theory. I'm actually trying to find an MMT professional to bring on for an interview for next week. So that's why I'm not getting into that today. So NAFTA. Let me give you a quick history because not everybody really is clear on the history of NAFTA. It was negotiated by the George H.W. Bush administration and signed by President Bush in 1992. People associate NAFTA with President Clinton, but it really was H.W. Bush's agreement. Bush lost re-election, so Clinton was left with the chore of getting NAFTA through Congress. And because he was having trouble with that, he negotiated two side agreements with Mexico and Canada. One was a weak attempt to address labor standards, and the other was an even weaker effort to address environmental concerns. Neither of these was ultimately effective, but both were the first of their kind. So it's not entirely on Clinton's head that they weren't particularly effective. Governments have to learn too, and they were trying to figure this out. The other thing that was part of NAFTA was the investor state dispute settlement, the ISDS courts, and they were subject to considerable criticism even at the time, though for very different reasons than they are now and by a far smaller percentage of the population. Clinton did finally get NAFTA through Congress in 1993, and it went into effect on the 1st of January in 1994. That's 23 and a half years ago. People talk about NAFTA as having extreme and ill economic effects in the U.S., and I have to say that it really isn't that simple. It can't be, and I'm going to go back to just the segment that you just heard when you heard David talking about a duct tape number. It can't be duct taped into a single number. NAFTA cannot be brought down to employment numbers at all. People try to do this all the time with NAFTA to the detriment of their understanding of what really is going on with NAFTA. So here on Netroots Radio and in the larger progressive community, we try to face actual complexity with an open mind. So here are some of the economic basics which aren't well understood about NAFTA. With the exception of some localized job losses, and I have to say these aren't to be diminished because lives were ruined, but it is difficult to prove that many job losses were exclusively attributable to NAFTA. And this is actually for really concrete reasons that you're going to easily understand, but probably have not heard in the same way before. The year after we entered into NAFTA, we entered into the WTO, the World Trade Organization, and separating the effects of the WTO from the effects of NAFTA really can't be done. Economists have been entirely unsuccessful at doing that. The next thing, and this is something that's going to be really clear for you, is that China became a major world economic player at about the same time that NAFTA hit. And the China shock dwarfs any Mexico bump by orders of magnitude. And Arliss, a lot of people like to blame NAFTA for something else that occurred around that same time, which would be the increased advance of robotics in the workplace. Exactly my next point, because automation and the internet and communication technology hit at about that same time. And why the internet matters, particularly to manufacturing, is that, for instance... There's one of the components of what my company builds that we can no longer get in the United States because China managed to put all the manufacturers of that product out of business. So I have to get that in China. 
And because of the internet, I can correspond immediately over Skype with my Chinese suppliers and we can have immediate adjustments made. We can have this instantaneous kind of relationship that simply was not possible. We can send information back and forth in ways that were not possible. So no matter what happens with NAFTA, these three things, the WTO, the China shock, automation and technology in general, those things don't change. So nothing done to NAFTA is likely to help workers or bring back a single job. No amount of negotiating NAFTA is going to make those changes. There are other things we can do to, to NAFTA to make it a better agreement, and we should indeed do those things, but nothing solves this problem. Nothing at all. Exactly. <laughs> the other thing that people don't recognize about NAFTA is that trade did grow dramatically. The overall increase in U.S. trade between U.S., Canada, and Mexico grew by 267% between 1993 and 2016. 267%. The overall increase in trade between the U.S. and the rest of the world increased by 242% during that same period. So it's not that we aren't trading a great deal more. It's just that it grew a lot more with Mexico and Canada because of NAFTA. The other thing, and I've mentioned this before, it built a middle class. NAFTA built a middle class in Mexico. And as I've said, this is why Mexico now, as of 2016, imports more U.S. goods than it exports. And though Trump still points to the cumulative $264 billion U.S. trade deficit, with Mexico as proof that NAFTA was, quote, the worst trade deal ever, unquote. The fact is that we're at the point of turning that around. So probably not the time to really, really piss off Mexico. The other thing to know is that if we get out of NAFTA, we're still in the WTO. ISDS courts still apply. We lose the ever so feeble labor and environmental side agreements that were part of NAFTA that aren't a part of the WTO. And U.S. products become markedly disadvantaged in both Canada and Mexico, which are major, major markets for us. But let me talk and focus just on Mexico for a second. Mexico is currently the second largest trading partner for the United States. Second largest. And within five years, they're poised to be our first trading partner top of the heap, which means that Mexico is in a much stronger negotiating position than they were 23 and a half years ago when we were originally negotiating NAFTA. It is very, very difficult to hurt the Mexican economy or to hurt Mexico, which is what Trump is trying to do, without also really damaging the U.S. economy. It's almost impossible to do that. And the Mexican government and the Mexican NAFTA negotiators have been saying that out loud. So it's not that they don't know that they're holding a big stick. They're feeling very ambitious. And they're planning on pushing for a significant upgrade in their relationship with the U.S. under NAFTA 2.0. So since Trump is bringing us back to the table and he thinks he's going to negotiate this incredible deal and hurt them and advantage us, I don't think he's paid much attention to the determination of Mexico to put an end to being the little brother. Mexico, like the U.S., is looking to modernize the accord. And I think everyone agrees that there are things that need to change in that accord. And there's some pretty reasonable agreement as to what those things need to be. But Mexico's also really thinking big. They want to push outside of, quote, what exists and to, quote, unquote, do something different. And this is actually really smart. They want to more closely integrate 
to boost North American competitiveness with Asia and the European Union. And that would be great if we could get that done. I doubt that we can, but that would be great. The things that they want to integrate even more closely, manufacturing, energy sector, transport, infrastructure, all of those things are necessary if we're going to improve our position in the overall world trading economy. The reality, though, is that U.S. congressional elections and the Mexican presidential election happen in 2018. So the time is pretty short to get NAFTA renegotiated before those things start to impinge upon what's possible. In reality, the NAFTA 2.0 is likely to be less of a think big kind of adjustment and more of a modernization outcome. Unless, of course, Trump walks, which is the danger. Well, I think really, honestly, as long as Mexico agrees to buy a couple dozen Trump steaks and some Trump water, they can probably keep him on board give him a big piece of land for a new Trump resort or something. I don't know. But this is a quote from Luis de la Calais, one of Mexico's 1994 NAFTA negotiators. And he has said, all of the attention in the last weeks has been on what the U.S. wants. Now it's time to think, what should Canada and Mexico want? Mexico has said it will not move off of no tariffs. And this threat of 35% tariff from Trump, that's trade war talk as far as they're concerned, and they're not wrong. The U.S. is required by law to give the written details of its objectives in the negotiations a month prior to the start of talks. And then at that point in time, Mexico and Canada have time to get together and agree on a strategy. So if you don't think that they're not going to come to the table with a concerted, specific strategy, you are seriously mistaken. So the moral to all of this is that governing is harder than campaigning. The Trump administration is dividing into economic nationalists and free traders, and those two divisions are battling each other. The economic nationalists are not at all worried about setting off a trade war. And in terms of setting off a trade war, they not only don't care about setting off a trade war with China or Mexico, they don't care about setting off a trade war with Germany, Japan, South Korea, Canada. They're absolutely in this America first camp. And Trump's America first base is literally too stupid to notice that this is, I think, what David Waldman would call a gun fail moment. It is starting a trade war is akin to shooting yourself in your own ass essentially shooting yourself in the foot to spite your face. Oh no, this isn't the foot. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is worse than that. This is stupider than that. Anyway, free traders are gaining ground apparently in the discussions going on inside the White House. Congress is in general predominantly free trade and they won't sign off on anything that will completely destroy our relationships. And of course, farmers know that their exported crops will be the first to take any retaliatory hits. So they're paying an awful lot of attention to what's going on with the economic nationalists. Trump's foreign policy, of course, does not extend any further or any deeper than casting blame. And foreign leaders have figured that out in no small part because they've all experienced and or raised a three-year-old. So they've all seen this before. So they understand how to work with now and how to counter Trump. By taking on NAFTA 2.0, Trump is taking ownership of NAFTA And that's going to be politically interesting here in the States for the long haul because he has overpromised because jobs aren't coming back and he's underdelivered. An example of that would be Carrier. But once this thing hits Congress, 
Once this renegotiated agreement hits Congress, congressional Democrats will immediately transform it into the North American Feed Trump Agreement and run against it for a decade, at the very least. And I have to say that, frankly, I think this is wrong. I think Democrats will be taking the easy way out by not facing the truth that unions have lost power and jobs for a host of reasons, the least of which is NAFTA. And we should be addressing the bigger problems, the real reasons, if we want to actually bring jobs back to this country and retain the ones that are currently here. But in the negotiating of NAFTA 2.0, we're in a weaker negotiating position than during the original negotiations. And pulling out would cause a recession, undoubtedly. And Trumpoids will be particularly hard hit if that happens. A reasonably good result, given politically realistic options, would be updates related to things like trademark law, digital communication and products, financial services, the service industry in general, because none of that is included in the original NAFTA agreement, and then an update on these narrow, what are called rules of origin. A lot of the products which are in the NAFTA agreement aren't even made anymore. They've become dated. And so that whole section, the whole rules of origin section of NAFTA needs to be updated and in fact, a little more forward thinking. The other reality to keep in mind is that opening up NAFTA in a world where Citizens United exists is, and I want you to all picture this, close your eyes, take a deep breath and picture this. It is like having an open bar at a football game and it can be either kind of football, but it's the same problem. Japan and the EU this week also announced a huge in-principle trade agreement. And this is a really, really big deal. So while the renegotiation of NAFTA is one thing, this new Japan-EU agreement, this is an enormous thing. It's being called Cars for Cheese. That's the, the current sort of nickname of it in Europe. But it functionally opens EU markets to Japanese cars and Japanese markets to EU cheese. And it is so specific. And this is just even the in-principle trade agreement letter of intent. That part is so specific that soft cheeses like brie and camembert are on one schedule and hard cheeses are on a different schedule. No joke. This agreement will cover 30% of the global economy, 10% of the world's population, 40% of global trade. It will form a trading block roughly the same size as NAFTA. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan has said, the birth of the world's largest free, advanced, industrialized economic zone. That's what he's calling it. And he said, Japan and the European Union will, quote, hoist the flag of free trade high amidst protectionist trends, unquote. And it's more than just about a free trade agreement. They're making a statement against protectionism, against Trump and Brexit. It's a calculated rebuke of Trump immediately before the G20. EC President Jean-Claude Juncker has said, as far as we are concerned, there is no protection in protectionism. They are looking to create a global trade network that is not U.S. or U.K. centered, and they are sidestepping the TPP completely without, by the way, killing it. There are still 12 countries negotiating the TPP. Interestingly, they're agreeing to place firmer protections around data privacy, something the U.S. is really opposed to. And this is my favorite part of this agreement. They are not going to use the mechanism of ISDS courts for dispute settlement. They're going to develop something new. And I certainly look forward to that. Next up. Me on too. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? 
Next up on Hopping Mad, Joel and Michelle will be talking to us and giving us some perspective on the police state and the Philando Castile case. Right now, we're going to discuss something that was in the news fairly recently. The Philando Castile case, the officer in that case, was recently acquitted. Mm -hmm. And while a lot of people are stunned by that, it came as no surprise to me. It was a, a sad thing, but not a surprising thing. And the reason for that is when you know the history behind American policing, the idea that a police officer could get away with killing a black man for no reason becomes pretty much apparent. So a lot of people do not know this, and a lot of folk have argued this over the years. But if you look at the history of American policing, it originated uh, here in the United States because for a long time what you would just have would be like a local constable or something like that. The idea of a police force actually evolved mm -hmm. out of slave patrols. And there was a study done by Eastern Kentucky University, and I'm sure that Arliss will put the link in the yeah, podcast. I'll do that. I think it would be a very worthwhile link to, to add, yes. Yes, and because most people don't realize that modern policing evolved from slave patrols, from groups of essentially vigilantes who were designated or authorized to go chase down runaway slaves. And, and I'm sure it was lucrative. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. It absolutely was a, a lucrative business, and they would receive bounties. But when you understand that that's where police organizations started, that is their basis, then you start to understand why white supremacy is sort of encoded in police stations or police forces DNA. And I'm not saying that all individual police are white supremacists. What I'm saying is, is that the system that they operate in was based on white supremacy from the outset and that it is very hard for a codified system to move out of that framework. Agreed. And as you pointed out, this sort of encoded uh, DNA of white supremacy within the police department is going to be exacerbated as we bring in more and more police officers who come from a um, military, I'm not going to say a military background because we have many, many fine um, families of police officers uh, generations worth, as well as soldiers. Yeah, as you as you point out in this this article, which is really great, a brief history of slavery and the origins of American policing, uh, written by Victor E. Kapler, Ph.D., is a really mind opening article to start with. So I think if a lot of people aren't really in terms of the origins of how we came up with our current day police force. And then, when we say uh, when we say we, 
we mean we, as in we come from this place of white privilege. Right, exactly. And the, our perspective, whether we want it or choose it or like it or not, that's our perspective. And unless we consciously, concretely educate ourselves, we don't exactly get out of that block at all. And um, uh, if, if I'm saying anything that is derogatory to anyone, I, I would really welcome a teaching on this because I think that's what we're all here for is to teach and learn from one another. Exactly. Now, one of the problems that uh, has also occurred is, as you were talking about the militarization of the police force, and this Correct. is something that's been an outgrowth from the war on terror. And the problem has been that with all of the military surplus that's basically being shopped out to various police forces from the Pentagon, what has also been shopped out with that has been what's called the warrior mindset. Now, the problem with having a war your mindset in a police force is pretty apparent in that if you are a warrior, you are fighting a war. If you are fighting exactly. a war, you need an enemy. And who are the police going to see as an enemy? Well, the people they're supposed to be protecting and serving. Mm -hmm. Now, well, not necessarily all the people. No, not necessarily all the people. When you have that warrior mindset that, that's been spoken of numerous times in, in, in various articles, that you've got this idea that there's a war on drugs, essentially. Well, if you have a war on something, then you do mm -hmm. need an enemy. And when you tie that in, again, to the Philando Castile case, what the officer stated at one point during his testimony was that, oh, he smelled marijuana smoke, and that made him fear for his life, because if this man was willing to smoke marijuana in front of his four-year-old child and didn't care about his four-year-old child, then what would he care about my life? Now, now, this is ridiculous on the face of it of, oh, I smelled a whiff of pot smoke and that made me so afraid for my life I had to shoot him. The other thing that makes it utterly ridiculous is, and take this from a registered gun owner and a person with a, a concealed carry license or a personal protection license, as they're called in Indiana. When you're pulled over by a police officer and you have a gun on you, the first thing you do is you tell that officer, excuse me, sir, I am a licensed carrier and I have a gun. It prevents or is supposed to prevent unpleasant surprises for the police officer. If he asks you to get out of the car or something and then you notices the gun on your hip and freaks out. You tell him about it, which is exactly what Philando Castile did. He told this officer, sir, I have a license and I have a gun. And the second he did that, the man decided to start freaking out, telling him, don't reach for it, don't reach for it. The last word said before he was shot was, I'm not reaching for it. Because the man, the officer told him to get his wallet to show him the carry license. So he reaches back for his wallet, like he's told you. So this has been a problem in so many of these cases, is the police giving out contradictory commands and then not, you know, shooting people for not following them. They'll say, reach for your wallet. Don't reach for it. Well, what did you want me to do? Did you want me to get my wallet out and show you my carry license? Or did you want me to not get my wallet out? Do you think that's a, uh, a gap in some kind of training where police officers can't focus in the moment? I actually think it's socialization. I think white America and America in general is so socialized and so trained by our our media, by our entertainment, by everything else to see uh, black people as 
criminal that everything that someone does cannot help but be viewed in that light. Like, if you watch Law and Order or CSI or something like that, you're always going to see a drug dealer. What are they always going to be? And, and again, it's hard to separate media from reality inside your own brain. When you When you've grown up and you've been seeing images and, and, and been taught certain things just by absorbing them, your brain doesn't necessarily differentiate fantasy from reality. And so with, with the police, they're just like anyone else. They're humans just like anyone else. But when they've been trained inside of this system, this system that grew out of slave patrols, so is white supremacist in its origins. And then you add on top of that the layers and layers and layers of assumptions of black criminality. Let's just put it that way. Anything someone does is going to be viewed in that light. I was recently pulled over. I actually forgot to tell the officer that I had my pistol on me until I pulled my uh, wallet out and had my card in it. The idea that I can get away with that and someone else can't is kind of amazing to me. This is a a huge issue, especially coming from uh, the standpoint of being, you know, a gun owner. Uh, You see a definite uh, problem with white privilege in that respect as regards the Philando Castile. And I just find it shocking. And I know that I shouldn't be, but I feel really upset about this. Well, and I think there is um, not enough known about the effects of PTSD on uh, police officers. And though there are studies that have been done, I'm not sure how much that has been actually applied actively in police forces around the country. And, but with that, we must, um, we must leave you for the week. Will and I and the team here at Hopping Mad, we all send our thanks out to Netroots Radio, but especially to you for joining us today. You can find the broadcast version of our show on Netroots Radio Mondays at 8 a.m., the podcast version, which usually includes Extra Mad but doesn't today is always available on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, MyTuner, TuneIn, and Overcast. Our website is imhoppingmad.com, and you can listen to or download the show there. We welcome comments, thoughts, tweets, and Michelle talked about this earlier. We really do, and it would really be great if somebody gets back to us about some of the segments today suggestions, all of that kind of stuff through the website or via Twitter at I'm Hopping Mad. Will is on Twitter at WillMcLeod99 and I'm there, of course, at Arliss Bunny. Next up is K-Grow in the Morning here on Netroots Radio.